Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hey there, Sam. What do you want to talk about today? Hey, Laurie. Well, I spotted a tweet from one of my favorite bookstores, uh, which is Interabang Books in Dallas, Texas, which you you might be familiar with. You've got good taste, Sam. (laughs) Thank you very much. And yes, so I was looking on Twitter and this popped up into my my feed. Interabang are saying... With COVID-19 predicted to be affecting supply chains through the holidays, start putting together those holiday shopping lists for books and gifts from Interabound Books so that you can be sure to order them in time. Questions, need recommendations, email us. So what's happening, Laurie? What's going on with supply chains over there? Yeah, it's we've been hearing the direst of predictions, or maybe I should say the most dire. I don't know direst <laughs> is, a, is a word, actually. The most dire predictions from the publishers about supply chain issues for, I don't know, I I think it started like right around the 4th of July. They started talking about this holiday season is going to be very tricky. We're not going to have dependable delivery dates. There's been some publishing dates that have been pushed that were books that were supposed to come out in September or October are now coming out November, December, some even not until next spring. These are mostly, I would say, not the big headliner fall books, but, you know, kind of other books, cookbooks, some very popular. And then in addition to these kind of publishing date delays, they've, you know, been saying, well, you know, we don't think that we're going to necessarily be able to guarantee you the kinds of delivery times that we have in the past. And in fact, it might be substantially longer. And in some cases, we might not even be able to get you the books at all in time for the holidays. Wow. So so why is this? Why is this happening? Yeah. So <laughs> it it goes back, I think, to that old problem of supply chain and COVID-19. And what I think is remarkable, and an article that was published in LitHub um, just earlier this week talked about it, you know, you, you think about big industry and businesses, and you think about people think, you know, kind of scenario planning and looking at opportunity and risk analyses. And it turns out that the paper industry, when COVID hit, rather than seeing it as an opportunity for them, which we all know that it was in hindsight, because just think about the number of paper boxes for home deliveries that have been broken down by all of us and just in excess. The paper industry decided, oh, um, demand is going to go down because of COVID for paper, including cardboard boxes, incredibly. And <laughs> they decided to to start making, cutting down fewer trees, making less wood pulp, which is, you know, the key component to paper. And as a consequence, we know that the demand skyrocketed and the supply was not there to keep up. And it's still not there in terms of meeting current demand. And so that that is one big problem. Another big problem that we're seeing, and we kind of saw this throughout COVID, 
and I know that I talked to some of my sales reps about this, is that there are fewer people in the warehouses. For one reason, some states mandated and some companies social distancing guidelines. So if you can envision, you know, kind of like a a book warehouse where people are, you know, kind of sourcing and packing up um, boxes of books every day, all day long, social distancing kind of limits the number of people that you can have in those buildings at one time. And then when you layer on top of that, testing and people that had to be quarantined and people that actually got sick and people that had to be out for side effects from vaccines. And it's just the, the, the case, I think, that for months, the warehouses, the delivery places, the logistic chains, truck drivers, that those things haven't been fully staffed and still aren't. So it's kind of like this huge, horrible snowball coming aptly um, just in time for Christmas and Santa and the holidays and the biggest shopping period, you know, of the year. Lovely. Yes. Yeah. Big. Are you guys seeing any of that over th- over there? Yeah, we have a special UK term for this kind of snowball, which is clusterfuck. I don't know if you have that over there. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, we, we use that term a lot too. <laughs> or, or just CF for short. Okay, very nice. And uh, yeah, uh, I th- anything you guys can do, we can do worse over here at the moment. So we have all of those things. We have the, the pulp, paper pulp problem. We have the fact that there are a few people in warehouses these will be supply chain issues anyway but on top of that we have brexit our ongoing national disaster and nightmare ah that Um, yes i forgot about that so in the uk at the moment it's it's just an awful awful mess uh you might have seen i don't know if it's it's got to the us the headlines about uh we're currently enjoying a petrol shortage gas shortages so at uh gas stations around the country there are queues on the forecourts people can't fill up their cars and of course this has big knock-on effects with the the hgv we call it the industry the the truck driving industry essentially and it's partly caused because we have a big shortage of drivers essentially for for, there's a there's a lot of things that have contributed to it but one of the really big ones is brexit in that we had thousands of european drivers up until Brexit. And then, of course, you know, they left the country and haven't come back because why would they? Um, And so we have this chronic shortage of delivery drivers, which was a problem anyway for the the book chain. So, for instance, we've had all kinds of problems with deliveries for books we've been expecting to come to us that, you know, they just Mm. haven't made it for days and days and days because there weren't enough drivers. And now it's had a double impact because there's this shortage of gas because the there aren't enough drivers to get the the gas to the the stations, the the gas stations. So everyone's running low, and so disaster upon disaster. And it's a, a serious worry about what's going to happen in the shops in the run up to Christmas, and whether the the big books are going to get through. At the moment, I'm not hearing a huge amount about shortages, but you know everything has a knock on effect and. You can kind of expect it to happen a few weeks from now. So now we're just at the end of September as we're recording this, and I'm expecting by October it could be getting pretty dire. I've got a a fairly good example of of how things happen. And so one of the things we do at Galley Beggar is we have uh, nice paperback covers with a very particular paper stock 
and they're very nice <laughs> thank you <laughs> so uh what we would do normally in a the sense of making hay while the sun shines you know when things are going well we buy uh in bulk some of that paper stock so that you know we don't have to we buy it when prices are low and so we don't have to get it in the future and buy it when we've got the money and don't have to worry about it for a long time and blah 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 and what would happen is the the printers would be happy about that because it means that they know we're going to keep using them because we're using that stock and they'll put aside a little corner you know they they have storage basically they you know they have spaces in the factory so publishers can do that but because everything is so backed up and bumped up and paper supplies are so questionable and things aren't getting out of factories in the way they should you know factories they're incredibly complicated places you you know they there's really serious maths in the the systems between how everything moves around the factories and all of that is suddenly getting clogged up so now we can't reserve the paper because they just don't know what's going to be happening in the factory and where they're going to be able to store things. And they've got a, their normal storage is being taken up by all the backlogs. And so if you think about just that one small aspect of book production, you know, the, the cover stock for future books is being affected. And then you kind of iterate that out all the way along the line. These little problems and bumps are going to be happening that are going to be going up and down the supply chain. You can see that, if things don't smooth out soon, there's going to be an awful lot of crashes and problems and production and supply issues, which is a real a real worry. Yeah, I mean, you, it's it is just kind of a, a domino effect. You're absolutely right, and and two of the things that this very good LitHub article that came out this week mentioned that are kind of consequences or, you know, maybe, you know, another effect are the fact that independent bookstores like Interabang Books and others all over the UK and the United States, we don't have a lot of storage space, okay? You know, we try to use every single inch of the store to maximum effect to sell books. That's, you know, that's why we're in business. And we've been told by the publishers, you know, order early, order more than you think, because you're probably not going to be able to place another order in October and get them and get books in time for the holidays. And so we've been ordering just ridiculous quantities of books. There's, you know, we probably have more space than a lot of bookstores do. But our storage is still very constrained and, and we're literally busting out at the seams, you know, trying to, because we were so scared that there weren't going to be books come November that we, you know, we ordered really big quantities that are coming now. So it's kind of like, what do you wish for? I guess it's better to kind of be, you know, having books piled up with nowhere to put them than not having books at all. But so we're we're happy that that deliveries right now are, are coming through for the most part, but I'm sure as the holiday season progresses, we're going to we're going to come up with titles that we're just not going to be able to get in for people and and popular titles, things people want. But the other issue that this article raised, and I want to talk to you about this, uh, Sam, because I think that you're you're really well placed to kind of comment on it, is what this does to debut authors when you know, when they have a book coming out, their whole career, they, you know, it seems at the time, um, 
is based upon how well this debut book sells. And if the book isn't getting into the stores, getting in front of customers, running out after, you know, an initial print run, like what does that do to a debut author? Yeah, the honest answer is I don't know. I, what I do know is that it's been hard for debut authors throughout the pandemic. And it's really tough that now this is happening as well. During the pandemic, it was harder for debut authors to get their books seen and to get in front of people. So while book sales rose, and it was a great time for, for reading for lots of people in, in lots of ways, I think even then it was hard for debut authors because you you have to have the books in front of people. People have to, you have to have that lovely synchronicity of being in a bookshop and spotting it and the, the beautiful thing of having a, a bookseller who knows about the book and knows this debut author is great and you can press it into someone's hand and and that part was missing and now after that there's this this new worry that their book's just not going to get through and again it's not going to get seen through no fault of their own it feels it feels really tough and yeah it's a worry for those authors it's a worry for publishers and it just feels it feels really sad. And, and it t- talking about the sadness, I mean, I feel I feel sorry for publishers, <laughs> of course, but for booksellers, particularly who have been on you know on the front line and had a really difficult time in the pandemic and have had to be either closing their shops or meeting people at a time when it's frightening to meet people, frankly. And you know they've gone through an awful lot, and then this hits them as well. It just feels cruel uh, and difficult. And I really hope that um, they can they can see it through. And I suppose I suppose at this point, we should put in our, our plea, actually, that, you know, <laughs> if you're listening to this, the thing to do is to buy early and buy often, go to your local independent and help them get through this by making sure those stock levels don't rise too high and uh, you know that uh, yeah we're soon soon at Interabang, it's not because of lack of sales but just because of how how we had to front load our holiday orders so aggressively you know we will literally be having to like store books outside on the sidewalk because there <laughs> there's just there's just no room we were we were talking yesterday we've got um an, a big author event coming up and we don't even know where to put this author to to sign the books and for the customers to come in and and meet her because it's just kind of like they're we're swimming in books which which is a good thing but um but yes i think that if especially if you know that there are particular titles that you've got your eye on for yourself or for friends or family or loved ones get that order placed now get it in early and then we won't have a lot of disappointment for the holidays. I just know because it's it's human nature. You know, we're we're putting out these these warnings, and a lot of people are talking about it. But we're going to have those people, those last minute shoppers, and I'm one of the worst procrastinators in this regard. That come into the store on December fifteenth and have a list of beautiful books that they want to give as gifts, and they're going to be terribly upset because there's probably going to be at least one title on their list that we're not going to be able to tell them that they can get in time for the holidays, which, you know, ordinarily a 10 day window to bring in a book that's still in print is, is not a big deal, but this year it's going to be a big deal, unfortunately. Wow. 
Wow. And on well, that happy note, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, yeah, on the, just this terrible reflection on the times we're living in. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, things, things just, uh, things just keep happening. And, uh, I don't know, I, I guess there's a normal out there again for us someday, but, um, can't come too soon, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Let's keep hoping. All right. Good talking to you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Laurie. listeners. Today on Across the Pond, we're so happy to have with us Elaine Feeney, whose debut novel, As You Were, will be released in the United States very soon. It's been out in the UK for quite a while now and making a very big buzz. Elaine is an Irish author and uh, a notable poet, and this is her first foray into a novel. So Elaine, welcome. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. Delighted to be here. Great. Elaine, I wanted to see whether you might want to um, read a short passage from your book for us to start. Yeah, Laurie, I'll open with the beginning of the novel, actually. I think it sets it up. It sets up the main narrator, Sinead Hines. So it's told in her first person voice. Um, And Sinead finds out in the first page of the novel that she's very ill and she conceals it as a secret. And what we have for the first chapter, um, it's called Pishrogues, which is a superstition. In It's an Irish thing, and um, she she's obsessed with magpies bringing bad luck. So um, it opens with this part called Pishrogues. I didn't tell a soul I was sick. Okay, I told a fat magpie. She was the first beating heart I met after the oncology unit, and she sat shiny and serious on the bonnet of the Volvo. One for sorrow. And I saluted her with that greeting you give when you find yourself alone and awkward with one magpie. And she flew away, piercing her black arc through the sky blue. An arrow points to, you are here. This is okay. Breathe. You are just a dot, swirly space. Breathe. No one will ever find you. Good. This is a good thing. Thump. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thump. After saluting Magpie, I sped at 139 kilometres per hour out along the M6. Stone walls hurled past, and the end days of August conspired with night, letting a cold dusk down. 39, fitting. On the car's windscreen, a fog was creeping around my eldest son's initials, traced inside a fat heart. But I was fine. Father always told me I was fine. So as the years went by, I grew increasingly mistrustful of bad news bearers. Miss Sinead Hines was fine. Father said so. I was fine. I am fine. I will be fine. Leave it there. Thank you. That was a good setup for the book. I thought that maybe we would start with a little bit of context first. You've been writing poetry for... I don't know, 15 years, something like that. Your your first poetry book, I think, was published in 2006. And I wanted to ask you whether you thought, and you've also written plays. So was there something about writing that you wanted to communicate that you thought that a novel uh, format would be the best way to get across your intentions with your writing? Right. So I did. You're correct. i published my first chapbook in 2006. So I started out um, 
publishing poetry through the slam poetry scene. So it's very performance based. I think you're far more familiar with it in the States, States than we are here. Um, and it was this really angsty and new and political politically engaged movement around, you know, 2004, 5, 6 and 7 in Ireland. So I thought it was great because you could just turn up and you had a microphone for three minutes and people had to listen to you. So I I took that form as far as I could. And then in um, 2014, 15, I got very, very ill and I ended up in hospital. And when I came out of hospital, I wanted to sort of decant my experience or maybe reflect it in some way because I found the the whole world of the hospital to be this really, really colourful cave-like experience. Um, and when I when I turned to poetry, it just didn't fulfil something about the auditory landscape of the hospital for me. Um, the eye of poetry became very suddenly very reductive. And I think, you know, people when you write a poem, people always assume the experience is yours. And I just wanted to have maybe a bigger motley crew of characters on a hospital ward. And it eventually just sort of it organically grew, I think, from there. This novel. So the the novel is is set, as you said, in in the in a hospital. I don't want to give anything away, but you know, it's it's very very close and very centered um, around the internal life of your your narrator and her life as a woman is kind of really you know it feels like it's a really important part and I notice in the the acknowledgements for the book for instance you you give a really nice thanks to your mum and say she introduced you to books understood their significance in a world where a woman's voice was often unheard and so I'm I wonder if you could tell us a bit about you know the thought process behind making that voice heard and why it's so important yeah, so I suppose it, it, the context of the maybe the setting of when I wrote this novel was before the repeal of the Eighth Amendment in Ireland to allow abortion access for women, and um, it was it was just between marriage equality as well and and this. So we were at a very frenetic and frantic time. I think politically here it was really um, there were a lot of women of my generation and and my mum's generation particularly kind of coming out together, and we were telling stories about our experiences of healthcare and our lives as well, Um, particularly my mother's generation, my grandmother's generation. I mean, Ireland was a very confined and very strict place for women up until the late 70s, until we joined the EEC. You know, you couldn't own your own property. You had no rights over your children. There was a contraception bar. There was a marriage bar. If you got married, um, you had to leave your job in the civil service. And I think people, you know, not to get too political too quickly, but people sort of forget, I think there's, there's a kind of a, a wonderful national identity story that goes along with Ireland gaining its independence, which, you know, is is a great stride forward and after colonisation and so on. But there was, you know, there was a really, really strict cultural and also legislatively regime imposed on women. So I think for me, my generation, because of free education and being able to access university education, our generation have moved farther than any of the previous female generations from our mother and our grandmothers. Uh, One of my grandmothers, for instance, she had 11 children, you know, in a very small house, um, left school early. My mum would have left school early. So when I want when I sat down to write this novel, I really wanted strong matriarchs to come forward. And I wanted it to be an intergenerational novel that, um, you know, that encompassed all these women that had 
in a way I felt for me sacrificed so much for our generation. Mm. Well, I wanted to tell you how much I loved the character of Sinead. She's such a she's such a warm and funny character. And as we've said, a lot of the the novel, probably three-fourths, if not more, takes place while she's hospitalized. And that gives her a lot of time for self-reflection. And she has some time, and we learn about her recent past. She's got a very loving family. Her husband, by all accounts, loves her to death. She's got three sons. But she, she's she been kind of constructing emotional barriers that don't really allow a good deal of intimacy or honesty between her relationship with her her children and her husband. And I thought that that was, it's sad, but it's also refreshing because I think that oftentimes in literature, we come across these hard-driving male characters who are the breadwinners and are all buttoned up emotionally. And here you've kind of flipped it. And it's it's the woman who's the breadwinner and was career-driven, but really has a hard time um, kind of being emotionally honest with herself and with her family. So I wanted to kind of find out from you whether or not there were certain things that you wanted to say about how we deal with with women and their emotional health and well-being. Well, I firstly, I'm really delighted that you like her because <laughs> lots of, many I've met many women who really dislike her, um, Sinead, as a character. And, you know, it's funny, you're not meant to defend your characters. But, you know, at the start, I was like, really? <laughs> Why don't you like her? Um, and, I, and I realized exactly what you said, Laurie. She's she's right. The flip side of this gender construct that we have. OK, so you're right. She She's very successful uh, breadwinner. I mean, she's she has her family materialistically in a very good place. She's uh, she's very driven. She's she's disconnected. Um, I would say disassociative in some ways, you know, from her traumatic upbringing. And I was trying to look at these characters. So I was thinking of the intergenerational trauma from a mother to her daughter, particularly. Obviously, the father is a very abusive figure in Sinead's past. But I was also looking at what do we do with trauma um, and where does it go? And I think in Sinead's case, it definitely she disassociates and disconnects from her, even from her sons. But I, I have huge empathy for her because she has that there's a ter- that scene at the very early on in the novel where she's in the maternity ward all alone. And I think women have those stories and those those secrets that they keep and that it can have a destructive relationship, uh, a, a destructive influence on the intimacy and relationships in later life that we don't always discuss, I think. I've probably gone way off the point now, but I was trying to think about it. So Sinead conceals her illness very early. So it's the first few pages. So I'm not giving away anything. She conceals this terminal diagnosis. And what I'm fascinated, I'm always fascinated by Sinead and what she decides to do, because she's one of these really stubborn women that really would only do what she wanted to do. So in the moment where she arrives in from the hospital with this awful news, she the moment passes between her and Alex, the husband. And yeah, he's a nice guy, but sometimes I felt like really shaking him really hard or turning him upside down to get him to respond to her needs. And there's that friction re-entry, right? So she comes into the house. And he's there and it's busy and she decides not to tell him. And then she continues for months not telling him. And I can really identify with that. It's a big moral question, right? Is that a right thing to do or a wrong thing? 
like I mean, I I I totally can identify with why she did it. Um, but I think we place so much moral judgment on female characters to end that segment. I sometimes think we do. We we want them to be likable. We want them to make better decisions, and particularly if they're mothers. So I, I like Sinead as well. Um, oh, I, just, I just kept that in. But um, I'm really interested. One of the things that I found really interesting about her in the book is that, you know, she has this secret or it turns out as the book goes on quite a few secrets and things she's been keeping hidden. And it feels like something that's very particular to her and, you know, very unique to her circumstances and her way of thinking. But actually, you also really broaden it out in the book into to Irish society as a whole. Uh, so, for instance, and you, you might have to explain this a bit, especially for, for US uh, listeners, but you talk about the, the Magdalene laundries, for instance, and things that have been hidden within Irish society. So I'm wondering, um, you know, how, how you see that, that history in Ireland? So, um, you know, some people could say, you know, it's almost like a, somebody said it was a state of the nation novel and then someone else said she threw the kitchen sink at it. And I kind of agree with both of them. <laughs> However, <laughs> I, I have been in hospital for very long periods of time. And so in Galway, where, where I live and where I grew up, I grew up in a small farm in the west of Ireland and the city Galway obviously has a hospital. And this one is a fictional hospital. However, just, you know, Galway had a Magdalene laundry and it also just um, in North Galway, where I where I taught for years in Tume, um, there was a mother and baby home that ran there from the 20s to the 60s. And it, it made world news um, some years ago when um, a, a, a burial of almost 800 children were, were found and in what was the uh, the remains of a septic tank. And um, what I found about so I I taught in this school for on, on in this town for years, and what I found was nobody really discussed this when this broke. This story broke, and in the staff room, people weren't talking about it. But the further you went, or if you were lying in hospital, people are very quick to then start to talk about something when they're a little bit distanced from it, or they think that they're talking to a stranger. And what I've noticed is. It's very difficult, like it's it's very hard to meet a family in Galway or in Ireland that haven't been affected by the institutional past of Ireland, that haven't had, you know, a grand aunt or a grandmother or a great grandmother that was incarcerated into one of these homes. Um, and these were these were terrible, like these these were like prisons um, and no crime was committed. It was just pregnancy outside of marriage. So if a woman got pregnant outside of marriage, um, often they ended up in one of these homes um, both out of financial need and also, I suppose, with respect to that idea of bringing shame on the family because it was considered such a shameful thing and such a shameful act. Um, and so with the characters of Jane, so you're right. So in the hospital ward, we have a character called Jane Lowe and a woman in her 80s. And it's very difficult to know when she's lucid and when she's not lucid as a character. And I wanted her that way in sort of a Greek chorus type of you know, scenario where she's telling a story about someone telling a story so that it's filtered that way through. Um, and, she, and she had a lover, um, Anne, and obviously that was a love that was a, a crime at that time. Um, and of course, then we do find out Anne had a very sad innings with the Magdalene Laundries. So if you ended up in a mother and baby home, often your child was adopted out. Um, and if you didn't have £100 to pay for your keep while you had been in the home, uh, or if you were a repeat offender, inverted commas, that was the terminology used, you were sent on to the Magdalene Laundries. And then you worked there for an indefinite amount of time, often forever. 
yeah, it's a very dark, it's a very dark past. And I really wanted to, I really wanted to bring it into the novel as well to maybe try to understand this level of trauma and this level of, we all feel that in some way, you know, my generation, even my children, we all feel something. And I don't think we've really tried to process it yet. So one of the really interesting things in the book is uh, what was called in the, the Guardian review, a particularly Irish brand of shame. And there's uh, a quote in the book where you say that this shame was is the most contagious thing inside and outside the hospital. And I'm wondering, following on from what you were just saying, if if that brand of shame, is it still something you feel like you're dealing with or, or you know, the characters in your book would be dealing with? Yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely a very big hangover from some um, moral teachings or, you know, I'm not ever entirely sure where, in fact, it comes from. And I think it, it, it you know, it's very definitely there. And yeah, I would have a dose of it every single day. So um, I definitely feel that it's something that Sinead, as this other character, this younger character, shouldn't be suffering from, but she seems to have it also. So she's ashamed, weirdly, that she's ill. She's ashamed that she's let everybody down, that she's sick. Jane has her own shame. Um, Margaret Rose, I suppose, is the only character maybe that doesn't fully um, feel it uh, in some ways. She, she to me, is often the freest character. And I love that about her. But I think definitely there's, there's still some sort of moral posturing that goes on. And, you know, I've often tried to think about where that comes from. Obviously, it's easy to blame the church, but we put ourselves under a lot of this pressure, too, with regards to shame, I think, and behavior and moral code. Um, and maybe, you know, it is an Irish thing, but I think it's a kind of a universal thing also. Yeah, I, I really loved the way that you brought in not just the setting of the hospital, but the different characters in the hospital that Sinead encountered and really lived with for for weeks, all day, every day. Of course, there's Jane and Margaret Rose, um, two fellow patients in her room, which, by the way, when we can talk about it, her room seemed quite overcrowded to me. But um, <laughs> but then I also I also like the way that you brought in the hospital workers and the caretakers of Sinead and Jane and Margaret Rose and the others. And I, I guess my question is, with the the hospital as a setting and kind of the the hard working conditions and the hard survival con- conditions of both the patients and the workers, were you trying to say something political about the healthcare system in Ireland as an institution? Well, I was probably trying to get away from saying political things when I went to write fiction. And actually, I feel like I jumped right back in again. And I think maybe I won't be able to avoid it. Um, Yeah, look, it's funny because I I remember criticizing the hospital. And one of my friends said the hospital that saved your life, right? And I was like, okay, I take that on board. However, yeah, there's great feelings in the health system here. And I think I'm not entirely sure that any country has has gotten their health system right. But definitely, you know, I, I've been on a mixed gender ward, an overpopulated ward, particularly patients like Jane with dementia, not having somewhere to, to, to put them uh, somewhere appropriate for their care and their needs. And to go back to the, the care staff, 
my experience, personal experience of hospital is, you know, you get the two minute rounds of the doctors in the morning and everybody has a formality around that. It's a it's a bizarre moment when everybody speaks even in a different voice, you know, um, to try to explain their illness and what, what whatever. But then it's throughout the day. It's the person that you see all the time. So it's the person that brings you their tea, your tea, or it's the person that brings you your medication or that washes your hair or whatever it might be. They're the people that you do genuinely strike up a very quick relationship with. Um, now, that might be a uniquely Irish thing. I think people were surprised. But if you've been at, to an Irish hospital, you'll be familiar with the level of chat we go on with. And I think for me, people then strike up these relationships, but they also put a lot of trust in these um, workers. So so Michael Piowski, the Polish care worker, he uh, was a very important character to me because I, I watched Polish care assistants translate for patients on wards while I was in hospital myself. And, you know, so, I, I you know, Ireland has also become quite multicultural. And that was an important reflection as well, that they're doing this very important work and that, you know, it's tough. It's tough work, right? It's tough. They're, yes. they're over overworked and under resourced. Yes, especially today, even more so than ever with with COVID. You know, we've, we've been talking very seriously, but one thing I, I think we should also stress is that this book is hilarious. It really made me laugh a lot of the time. And uh, there's, there's one one passage I, I really love where Sinead starts, uh, she's quite declarative, and she just says, I stopped reading years ago. And then there's a really funny uh, description of, of why she's kind of given up on books, because Dickens makes me made me feel like I was exaggerating because there was no workhouse or undertakers. Dylan Thomas made a hash of it all. And when Kate Brady ended up walking all alone and destitute in London and never reconciling with the big, thick fuck of a father in the third of that trilogy, <laughs> this finished me. And, uh, you know, it, it's really funny, but also it did kind of, huh, you know, as a, as a big reader and uh, someone in the world of books, slightly worried me as well. You know, is there, <laughs> is this, is this, do you, is there some truth in what she's saying? Is this how, how you feel sometimes that books can't quite give us the truths that we need? Not not genuinely not for me, not personally for me. Um, I think with the Edna, it was just I think she was hoping that there'd be a response to the father in that in that trilogy that might be able to maybe help her along her way with her own. And I think maybe um, she, she was a really she was a really wide and deep reader when she was younger. And I think she she turned her back on it because she turned her back on her emotional responses to most things. And I think books will give you the good, the bad and the ugly of the human condition. Right. And I don't think that Sinead necessarily needed that at that time. So I think that, yeah, it, it's definitely not my own personal experience with books. I would I'd be very lost without them. And from a very young age, they answered a lot of questions for me. But I think for for somebody like Sinead, I think she just, you know, she she had such a bleak um, upbringing. And then you look at someone like Dickens and then it's far worse. And she's trying to constantly compare her situations to other people. Um, I think she's funny by accident also. I think she doesn't actually mean to be as funny as she is. I think that's just part of her off kilter type of personality. But um, humour is very important to me. And I think with great darkness, there comes this big shadow of humour. So I think in the worst, uh, in foxholes and in the worst situations, humans are quite, can be quite funny. And it's, you know, it's testament to our resilience, I suppose, to keep going on. Will I go on? I'll go on. <laughs> 
Yeah, to that point, I, I had a, a very similar kind of uh, question in mind, and, and that is that, you know, um, Sinead is not just sick, she's terminally ill. And yet, like you and Sam both indicated, she's got this this humor that she maintains throughout and this resilience until the very end. And I wondered whether that was something that you wanted to communicate about how we kind of think about our own mortality and and whether we do we do a good job with that or we don't. Um, no, that's an excellent question. And I think that's all down to an individual response. Um, and I think it, you can you can just have your own individual response to mortality and what that means to you. Um, but I think that the modern world that we live in seems to really function around wellness and it functions around health. And it's um, and I think the last 18 months to two years will be a game changer in the way we, we, we approach our life. And, and what I found really fascinating um, when I was very sick, I found, you know, everybody gets on with their own life because, of course, they do and as they should. But it's it's a really, really lonely journey, actually, that journey. Uh, and you only find other people that maybe have been there or close to something that that actually can maybe understand what someone goes through when they're when when, you know, they're, they're very ill. Um, and I think that the I was fa- I'm always fascinated by this culture around as well. Get up and beat your sickness, and 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 they bet they bet their cancer. Or they beat their cancer. We say bet here. That's very high burn. No English. Sorry. Um, they beat their illness, and it's like you're a champion then. But then the the flip side to that is, do you fail if you don't? And I think that's a very destructive way to think, right? Um, and also like you know. I've met, I've been around friends and family who've been terminally ill and, you know, uh, some that never had a sense of humour, they don't suddenly develop one. Those who had a sense of humour never lost it. I think it's down to character the way we we, we face our mortality. Um, but yeah, but it was a tough, it was a very tough write, Sinead's, the, the ending of the novel was very, very tough. Sleepless nights for me. Well, I I, I think that you ended it very, very well and on a surprisingly uplifting note for for the grim circumstances. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to talk about what I think is a remarkable novel, funny and warm and important and really thoughtful. So thank you for for being here and best of luck with the North American release of As You Were. Thank you, Elaine Feeney. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks, Sam. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. <laughs>